In this video, responding to you, your critical feedback, your informed commentary, your, let's call it, constructive criticism. Why? Because I love you in that hetero-slash-platonic, wholly above-the-belt way. In other words, yeah, it was a pretty friggin' slow news day today. I'm Tom Cadogan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars. Cheap. I do. Australia only. Website. Card. Now, before we get into the questions and comments and critical feedback generally, as night follows day, you can take it to the bank that I'm going to get a question about what is the D, okay? The D is obviously Deadpool. Dude, get out more. Watch some more Marvel movies. Like, what have you been doing with your life? And I get questions endlessly about the magnetic glassage. I do like that because it allows you to see out there and also see the millimeter markings on your rule or the fractional inches, even the 30 seconds, which is roughly the same as a millimeter. Ghetto. But they are awesome. The only thing I'd say is in a place like this, the little rare earth magnets that do the aligning and the holding together of yo glasses are highly attractive to all of the metal shavings and powder that you make in a place like this when you angle grind a bit of steel or you take it to the linisher or the belt sander or something. And if you're not careful, the magnets will just fill up with those filings and then it will turn into rusty, shitty gloop unless you take a preemptive strike from time to time against that. So I strongly suggest you do that. They're not safety either. I mean, they're high vis, but they're not safety specs. So don't use them when you're grinding or doing anything with real potential for eye injury. Use proper safety specs for doing that. Like, you know, it only takes 10 seconds to put a pair of proper safety specs on. And at the risk of sounding like an OHS Nazi, which I'm not, you've just got to have personal responsibility. It's 10 seconds to whip these on versus the eternity, subjectively, of the rest of your life with no sight. So there's that. Okay, so let's get into the commentary generally now. First one here from Koito Rob, who says, slightly off topic, I know. But what are those black things in the red and grey wall-mounted containers on the wall over your left shoulder and behind you? He's talking about this. And this. And this. And I'd suggest, Koito Rob, that these things are engineering clamping kits that you would see conventionally in a tool room, usually associated with milling machines and radial arm drill presses and things of this nature. And you might think, well, I don't have one of those, so why would I bother? And I'd suggest that they're really useful for a variety of things. Like when you've got a welding table, which this is, it's three pieces of uh, 10 inch or 250 universal channel, right? And they're just stacked up and you weld on it, right? But when you've got that, you're always looking for a little shim or a tiny little corner square kind of thing just to just to measure you know some tiny little thing or keep it at 90 degrees or something like that and then you've got the need for an end stop that you can bolt to a table or some marker that you can use as a reference edge on the edge of your table. You just clamp this to the edge of your table and then all of a sudden a piece of work that you're 
doing something too can just slide up here and be referenced to that edge, right? It works really well. So the sky's the limit. This is like Meccano for men sort of thing. It's like big boys Legos or something. Now, the way they're meant to be used is, let's start with the T slot, like the T nut goes into a slot like this in a milling table or a radial drill or a big heavy duty industrial drill press. And then you build a clamping situation on top of that. And the easiest way to do it is just, you know, if you're clamping something like this drill press vise down to the table, that just goes through it like that. And you put a nut through it and you clamp it down, right? So that's pretty simple. And then the fixed jaw of your vise becomes a reference edge for repeatability if you're doing multiple operations. Now, I just want to make sure that you'll be able to see this. If you've got that in your T-slide and your table's up here somewhere, then you can get one of these blocks, right? And it'll sit there like that on the top of the table. And then you get one of these clamping pieces and they've got serrations, okay? So the serrations mate together like this and then that sits in there like that and the thing that you're clamping down, wherever it is, right? You just get your nut on top of that and there's your clamp and you do whatever machining operation to it, you face mill it or you end mill it or you drill it or you slot it or you get your slitting saw or whatever it is and you just make swarf basically. But essentially it's a clamping kit that's just super useful if you do any kind of fabrication work, especially stuff that's limited run because if you're doing something where you're making hundreds of units, right, you've probably got a jig for everything. You've got a jig to hold it for welding, you've got a jig to hold it in place for drilling, and all of that stuff is just kind of handled, right? But if you're only making two or three, like I'm making these four brackets here, right? And I've just got to weld a piece of square hollow section into the void that is not that not yet there, okay? And the way I'm going to get the holes all standardised is by putting... Uh, reference surfaces on the table of the drill press and just then I don't have to measure or mark anything out it just sort of happens so there's 16 holes to go in there plus another one on top and I'll just jig up for that and that'll make it a hell of a lot easier and also less amenable to just fucking one up and having a hole in the wrong place because you know you got the first fall right and then you zoned out mentally and dogs and cats live together anyway I'd suggest that for home fat cave ops the 12mm one that I just showed you is the best. 16's a bit big, and 16's an uncommon size. Like, you have to really tool up to drill 16mm holes in a big fat piece of steel on your table, which is an upcoming project here. Uh, but 12mm is okay, because standard drill sets, like in that box up there, I've got another couple of sets over there, they all go up to about 13. Anything over 13 takes, you know, essentially special effort. And uh, therefore, it's just, that means more money and you've got to weigh that up against how often it's actually going to be useful to you. And, you know, that's why 12 for me is the Goldilocks sort of solution. If you get yourself a sort of real tiny baby mill or baby lathe or something, then maybe the 8mm one 
is kind of going to be the sweet spot for you. It's all about the, the, the T-slot size in the table, basically. The 8mm one is really good for the tiny little lathes and the hybrid lathes with the mill thing on top of them as well. And you can do some awesome work with them. You just have to be mindful of the power limitations and depths of cut and ultimate size of the stock you can work on kind of thing. But I hope that's cleared that up for you, Rob, and others who might be interested uh, to know what the bloody hell that stuff is hanging up on the wall. I've got this one here from Brian Evans who goes, Are you okay, John? You seem to start talking funny every time you read something. No, I don't. Brian, that's, that's ridiculous. I repudiate that allegation without reservation son and that's how politicians do it every day in news conferences they just believe in the moment that's kind of how that works i want to address this too because they get this all the time this one is from bob no second name mum and dad too embarrassed were they bob just to have them append the family name upon you just we'll just call him bob okay darling Looks like the only tool on the bench that looks like it's ever been used is the hammer. I hate it when the education system leaves someone behind, Bob. Looks like the only tool on the bench that looks like it's ever been used is the hammer. Right. So here's the thing, dude. This hammer, I have had this bloody donkey's years since I was 20-something, which, yeah, let's face it, there were dinosaurs in the street with saddles on them because that's how we friggin' got to the office. So when you do this for a living, like, you need to build a set, okay? And that means you need to do stuff with it. And I've got, you know, spanners I've had forever and new tools as well and... I actually consider myself to be quite fortunate that I've got the budget for and the need for the acquisition of new tools. In fact, when I started doing this over on the other setup over there, I threw out a bunch of shitty old tools I'd had for years and I upgraded them to better tools. And that was quite uplifting for me. And I am a, a sort of high functional tool hoarder, essentially, and hey, if that's a disease, an addiction, whatever, then okay, guilty. Like, But I'm coming to terms with it, you know what I mean? The, the thing is, I don't feel any sort of obligation to prove to you or Bob that I know how this shit works, because I know how this shit works. I walked into a tool room for the first time at the age of 15, right? I rode my bike to shitty old Meadowbank, and I met my would-be employer there, a guy named Charlie Raiden, who was very hard but fair and also an excellent toolmaker, and he taught me a lot of shit. And he was really a pivotal influence on my life at the risk of actually talking about myself for a change, which I find very, very boring, but not as much as you must. Anywho, let's just say philosophically I never walked out of the tool room and it's been 40-something years, okay? So i got some old tools, I've got plenty of old tools, like uh, my second favourite ball-peen hammer. I've had that for years too, and I haven't even busted the handle on this one. I've got some old chisels, I've got my very first uh, tap wrench just here, P&N number 5, Australia. I've had that for donkey's ears too, and I've had to resurrect it from a rusty death twice now, but 
it's not looking too bad with the rusty patina all over it, I'd have to say. Got the old heavy-duty ratchet here. Like that, like the reverse on the pole. Pro tip, there isn't one. You just push the square thing through. I like that, really like that. I, I hardly ever use it, and yet I can't part with it. Anyway, I got some old stuff and I got some brand new stuff. I got my 20-year-old engineer's square here, the base of, well, the main body of which has been rescued from its rusty death about four times as well, and I've had to stone it back to pristine condition. It's got a bit of patina on it as well, which is quite nice. But anyway, I don't see that the age of your tools has anything to do with your capability or your prowess with them one way or the other. I'm not Tool Yoda. I've met a few dudes who are Tool Yoda. My initial instructor, Charlie, was Tool Yoda, and I am but a shadow of his former capabilities, long dead, of course. But anyway, I, uh, I just have to say that the YouTube comments feed can be a cesspit at times where people go out of their way to make the worst possible interpretation of anything you do, right? And you wouldn't do that face-to-face -face with a normal person. I'm just saying, I don't give a shit whether Rob or anyone else thinks that my tools are just props and therefore I don't know how to use them because, hey, I don't feel as if I am indebted to prove that to anyone you anyone else sorry i just don't now let's listen to dash cams serbia who says that is a huge font that you are using it takes you three sheets of paper to print a short email well it's not a huge font dude this is called preparation okay like i do actual preparation before sitting down on my ass here and rolling the camera and incidentally this is an old radio trick and I was a host on Radio 2UE for several years and this is one way of taking some of the cognitive burden away from a thing that is actually very difficult to do which you probably wouldn't appreciate if you're a consumer of this kind of thing as opposed to the producer of this kind of thing if you're vomiting <laughs> you get how hard it is and if all you do is licking it up then it's very easy to consume but I'd have to say that being on this side of the lens is really hard. There's a burden, right? There's a burden to get it right. There's a burden not to just fuck something up. And it's really easy to fuck something up. There's a burden not to defame somebody. There's a burden to get the facts across in a reasonably entertaining way. P.S. Humour is friggin' hard. Like, and I don't, I know I don't always hit it. I know that, okay? But... I have a crack at it and the attempt is, the intent if you like, is to make it easier to digest, to sort of ride along with the serious stuff on a set of ripples that are occasionally humorous, right? And humour is fucking hard. So if I print this 50% bigger than the 12 point you'd write a letter in, and I use Comic Sans instead of Arial or Helvetica Nuve or something, then yeah, guilty as charged. Your point is what? Sitting on this side is hard, dash cam Serbia. Roger Smith now. Now this is about my toe ball moment of zen. I'll put a link up to that video if you like, but you know, there's the shot, okay? This is just such a classic. Roger says, isn't the spring washer supposed to be between the nut and the flange, not the ball, to prevent it from coming loose? Okay, so let's get a few of these things, these terms, 
in a can so we know what we're talking about. The nut is the hexagonal thing on the bottom, okay? The flange is the flat surface on the bottom of the toe ball. The tongue is the black steel thing that the toe ball bolts through. And the ball is the spherical shaped thing on the top, dude. So I'd suggest that the flange mates with the tongue. Don't Google that. At least don't Google that at work for more information. But trust me on this. The flange goes on the tongue, then the spring washer goes underneath and the nut cinches it all down. As for the spring washer's ability to prevent the nut coming loose, NASA did research on that in the 60s or 70s. I think I've got the NASA bolting handbook there somewhere. If I can find it, I'll put a link to it. But you can Google it, okay? Some nut and bolt research from NASA. And the conclusion was, of course, that the spring washer is absolutely useless at stopping a nut from coming loose because when the nut is tight, the spring washer is flat and therefore the cut surface on the washer cannot engage with the face of the nut or the thing that it's bolting down to. It just can't do that because it's flat. So the nut has to come loose by a sizable amount for the spring washer to engage with anything. And if it's a high tensile joint, by the time that's happened, it's all over, dude. The joint is no longer working and you're at the point of inviting catastrophic failure through the door for a little party at your place, even though you're not prepared for that often. So spring washers are abjectly shit. And what I'd prefer to see on things like toe balls is a hole through the threaded portion of the shank for a cotter pin or you could use a castellated nut with a hole to stop it undoing any significant amount given that they hardly ever come off toe balls right in service you just leave them bolted to the tongue okay why not just use loctite like the semi-removable loctite like is that the red one or the purple one the purple one would be fine for that sort of job okay and all of these things would be better than a spring washer in terms of preventing the fastener from coming loose. But ideally, and obviously, the thing that stops the nut from coming loose is to tighten it up to the correct torque because then the stretch in the fastener provides a lot of sort of friction and other type interference, like conformity type interference, that prevents the nut from coming loose, which is why if you use a torque wrench, the thing that you do up does not generally come loose unless it's subject to significant vibrations or gasket compression or significant heat cycles and things of that nature, none of which a toe ball is subject to. So there's that. Let's uh, go on. Uh, there's another comment here from Bruce Hart about that. This is pretty interesting too. Bruce says that the guy who put that together like that, and in case you can't figure out what's wrong. The spring washer is separating the flange and the tongue, and that is very unsatisfying. The spring washer needs to be on the other side of the tongue so that the flange can be touched by the tongue during assembly. Very important, dude. Google that, but not at work if you like. Bruce goes, probably not an idiot, probably. Exceptionally poorly trained. Probably not an idiot, probably exceptionally poorly trained. That's two sentences in one sentence, Bruce. 
very economical dude. He goes on and says, it's piss easy to laugh, but we don't come out of the womb with mechanical knowledge. Otherwise, we would not have needed an industrial error. Brousseau, come on, dude. I get that not everybody could intuitively figure out how that goes together. But this was put together by the service department in a dealership. And even if an apprentice did it on day one, what's obviously missing from an assembly such as this is quality control. It's the experienced hand looking over the job at the end and giving it the seal of approval, which clearly this should never have received, right? So quality control and checking the apprentice's work is really important in my view. And that's what's missing here. It's not just a matter of poor training, it's a matter of poor systems in place allowing this sort of thing to get into the hands of a customer. Bomber now, bomber. Your videos are great, to the point and realistically very true, exclamation mark. No need to shout, Bomber. I wonder if the government can create a position for you in their ministerial cabinet as an automotive advisor slash protection minister with four screamers, four exclamation marks. It's a lot of shouting, Bomber. Not sure if it sounds silly or a damn good idea. Three question marks. It sounds silly, Bomber. Can you imagine me in Parliament House? I might tell some minister what I really thought of them. And uh, it's the equivalent of dogs and cats living together. Ministers hate that. It's a suck fest down there. If you're on the minister's staff, like, dude, you have to believe. Keith Olford now. I have a three-tone caravan. That is a good ute for towing it. On the off chance, Keith, that you mean you've got a three-tonne caravan... What is a good ute for towing it? I'd suggest none of them do. Because to tow something that weighs three tones, you'd need a vehicle that weighs three tones. Because, dude, caravans, this is a new use for the clamp kit, caravans are unstable in pitch and yaw, right? This is long ways, okay? Unstable in pitch, like braking and accelerating, they tend to pitch up and down like that. And they're unstable in yaw because the axle groups are in the centre, right? And all the weight's out here. So it's really easy for your type influences to make a caravan spin. And obviously it's connected to a vehicle and those pitching yawing motions have impact on the motion of the vehicle. And the only restraint that the vehicle can offer the caravan is by virtue of the vehicle's mass. The greater the mass of the caravan in relation to the mass of the vehicle towing it, the less stable the vehicle and therefore the combination is going to be. And a really good rule of thumb to use here is don't tow a caravan that is heavier than the curb weight of the vehicle. And I know a lot of people do that and I know it's allowed, I know it's legal to do that. It's just what we call in engineering a fucking stupid idea, dude. Okay, so if you've got a three-tone caravan, you need a three-tone vehicle. And that means a truck if you want to do it safely. And, like, dude, it is not okay to go on a 10,000-kilometre trip and have 9,999 of those Ks stable and safe. 
It's the one K where that doesn't happen that really matters. That's the one where lives get changed forever and not for the better, okay? So what we're really doing here is being conservative to engineer out the ultimate worst case scenario, I'd suggest. So that, hopefully Keith is uh, feeling like I'm a bit of a bastard now, no Christmas card from him. My objective is to get no Christmas cards from anyone, particularly car companies, but anyone this Christmas. And I'm sure we can cross Keith off the list now. Tom Parker has a comment about my recent video concerning the model year 23 Mitsubishi Triton, part of which is the advent of these 400 sport edition GLS-based limited edition packs. Like, Anyway, part of it is they have red accents. And Tom says, red accents? Are they Russian, Chinese, Cuban? I'm curious. Me too. I'd like them to be Russian. I'd like them to come direct from the Komitet Gosudarstvenoi Bezopaznosti. Spasiva Nastarovia kind of thing. They don't. They're just coloured red. And it shits me because... In my view, packs of this nature with the red accents and the leathers, the red stitching on the black leather and all of that stuff, it just, it just points out to me how fucking out of touch car company executives are from the people who actually use their products, from really significant chunks of those demographics. Okay, so just to, just to invert Tom's point here and be serious about it for a second... And this is not just Mitsubishi. This is all ute manufacturers. They could do this instead of this vomit-inducing stuff that they do in the marketing department, right? Because what would be wrong with a proper adventure pack? And I wrote down a few suggestions here. You could do this in conjunction with the aftermarket industry. You'd have, they'd have to certify it because it would have to come with the factory warranty. But what would be wrong with saying a lot of the people who use our ute, and not just Triton, but all utes, they're going to go adventuring with it. They're actually going to go four-wheel driving. They're going to go and visit Cape York or Kakadu or Dingo Piss Creek or cross the Simpson Desert, go to the Birdsville friggin' races, whatever, okay? The Udnadatta track, like that kind of thing. What would be wrong with fitting recovery points front and rear, a second spare tyre? What about a dealer-fitted, approved second spare tyre-fitting thing, okay? And then it would take all of that dodginess out of getting your second spare tyre there. And that adventure pack could come with different tyres, like tyres that were better for rough road kind of applications. Wouldn't that be nice? Because the standard tyres are really only good for driving on the highway. And I know when you go to the Udnadatta track or the Simpson Desert or any of those places, Birdsville, you are mainly going to drive on the highway, but then when you do get on the unsealed stuff, the ruggedness of the tyres really counts. And you're going to get your brand new ute home, you're going to throw away a perfectly serviceable set of tyres to upgrade to tyres that are more suitable for that rough road running that you're going to do. That's crazy. What would be wrong with a manufacturer just doing that out of the blocks? What about some solar panels that go on a roof rack, like 200 watts, with an inverter? you know, second battery somewhere, in some container, in the tray, whatever. 
It's not that hard. You just get inside the head of proper adventurers and give them a proper adventure pack. You could do the same thing with a proper tow pack, right? You could have a proper tow pack with an electronic brake controller for really, really heavy trailers, heavier than two tons, for example, even though don't do that. Two-tone trailer with a two-tone ute. Dude, come on, try to keep up. But you could also provide somewhere to stow the hitch when it's not when you know when it's not in the receiver because the hitch is a dirty big heavy projectile in a crash isn't it it'd be nice to have a secure place to have that stored and wouldn't it be nice if someone with actual engineering qualifications figured out a way of doing that that was integrated perhaps with the tow bar itself so that the tow bar included a facility for stowing the hitch when it was out of the friggin receiver like instead of red accents and red stitching okay and the final thing i'd suggest is that so many of these vehicles are bought by tradies or people of that ilk mowing contractors whatever what would be wrong with a proper trade pack for you okay what would be wrong with that you could have the inverter the solar you could have a 240 volt outlet in the tray so that you could charge your power tool batteries without removing them because let's face it if you get the batteries back home and you put them in charges back here there is a chance that the next morning if you sleep in or you wake up hungover or whatever you're going to leave in a hurry leave the batteries behind that's going to put a dent in the friggin productivity today isn't it kind of thing so wouldn't it be good to have onboard charging by virtue of the inverter with an outlet in the back that just made that easier i think that'd be awesome you could have a draw system premium sort of alloy tray that was optimized for trade use and you could have service body sort of option and whatever wouldn't that sell its tits off if it was factory the factory trade pack and if it was really good even if it was just white labeled from the aftermarket industry you could have proper mounting points for stuff you know tie down net etc for anything and racks for longer items this would not be hard to do and it would certainly be better than nauseating sort of red highlights and you know there's our sport pack come on and now tone Tone is such a fixture of the comments. He's been down there for years, inflicting myself upon him. Nobody deserves that. Tone goes, holy crap, John, you're smashing out content as of late. Are you trying to compete with Scotty Kilmer for most prolific automotive YouTuber award, if such an award exists? And I'd say, no, Tone. It's far simpler than that, son. It's just this. The work of Australia's most despised automotive investigative shitstirrer is never really done, son. And now finally, Joni Zergo with an X. Zergo. Love your channel. Challenge you to stop the OKs and the rights. Okay, right. I challenge you, Joni to stop apostrophizing plurals. There's no apostrophe in okays and no apostrophe in rights, genius. I further challenge all wannabe executive producers out there in the comments feed, and you know who you are. I challenge you to grab your smartphone, invoke the video camera, selfie mode, and just rest it somewhere on a blob of blue tack, perhaps pointed at yo grill. Just look straight down the barrel 
and try to speak eloquently for two minutes about your favourite subject without sounding like a complete gibbering friggin' pelican. I bet you don't get a quarter of the way there. Okay? Right?